Good morning, Four Oaks Church. It is Friday, April 29th, which means the next time we see each other in person, probably it's going to be May 1st. I don't know why that's significant, but it just seemed like something to note. But yeah, we have just blown through April, and now we are here Friday, April 29th uh, for Romans Rewind. And what I thought I would do this morning is to sort of give us a jump start into the sermon on Sunday and to kind of forecast how Paul lays out Romans 9. Because what we essentially covered last week in the sermon and this week is, is this idea that the Jewish people have fallen away and they are the Gentiles are questioning whether the word of God has indeed failed in the life of God's chosen people of the Old Covenant. And that Paul is going to be set out on addressing why the word of God has not failed. And so want to kind of forecast this argument for you and get you thinking about it. Now, you're going to hear a version of this on Sunday. So when you do act like you're smarter than everybody else and say, hey, I know what what he's talking about. And there, there is a word I want to introduce to you. Um, it's not one we use much, and it's it's one I'm going to look on my phone to make sure I pronounce it correctly. Prosopopoeia. Prosopopoeia. It's a rhetorical device where if you are making an argument or making a statement and you anticipate someone making an objection or an argument against what you're saying, you sort of uh, adopt as a rhetorical feature their viewpoint and articulate their thoughts for them. And, to, and, and so, for example, um, if, you're, uh, if your kids are ever asking permission to do something, uh, they want to spend the night at somebody's house or they want to go uh, with someone on an overnight or, or something like that, and they come and ask you, and they are anticipating the response, all right? Maybe they're anticipating a negative response. And they may say something like, now, mom and dad, I know what you're gonna say. You're gonna say, we're not gonna get enough sleep. You're gonna say, we're gonna spend too much money. You're gonna say, and so in response to that, I'm gonna tell, I'm telling you this, we will get sleep, or we won't spend this money, or we will do it this way. You, you kind of get the idea. Well, that's what Paul is doing in Romans 9. He's using a rhetorical feature where he is anticipating the objection or, uh, or response of his audience, and then he is answering that objection. The reason it's important to note this is that as we go through these different sections of Romans 9, there are going to be thoughts, concerns, maybe even objections, questions that are going to pop into our mind. And we're going to want to just stop and have all of those questions addressed at that moment. But remember, when the church in Rome is gathered and they are hearing this letter from Paul um, read to them orally, it's all happening in one setting. And so when you think about it that way, you, you get the, the flow of thought that Paul's almost like a defense lawyer, right? And now who is he defending? Well, even though he doesn't need anyone to defend him, who he's really what what he's really defending is the righteousness of God. And theologians call this a theodicy. It's where you are making a justification for God. That's where John Piper's book, 
gets its title, Justification of God, an exposition of Romans 9. And so Paul lays out a series of arguments, rhetorical devices, because he is very intent on showing um, that God's word has not failed. And this is kind of what this looks like. So let, let, look at your Bibles, okay? Romans 9, 1 through 5, Paul talks about the great anguish in his heart. He talks about the home field advantage, spiritually speaking, that the people of Israel have had. And coming to that, he anticipates the response. And the response is, well, well Paul, if, if the Jews have received all these blessings, then the word of God must have failed. And to which he says in verse 6, but is not as though the word of God has failed. And then he lists out all the reasons. Okay, now we're going to um, unpack those this Sunday in detail. But essentially what Paul says in here is no, um, God's purposes, God's promise, his word has not failed because he sovereignly does what he does. He cannot accomplish his will. That's not an option for God. And he, and he kind of unpacks this idea of unconditional election. All right. So at the, at the end of this um, little section, Paul anticipates uh, another argument, which is to say, well, if it's God who's sovereign, who elects, who calls, who decrees, who's going to believe in him, um, then that seems like, Paul, that, that's not very fair. That, 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 that seems like God is unrighteous, and Paul anticipates that response. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And he says, by no means. And now we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but in, in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about why is God not unrighteous or unfair or injustice. And, and essentially part of what Paul says here is that it's not in his character, to, I'm sorry, it's not in his character to be unrighteous or unfair, right? Um, we live and move and have our being in him. And so it's, it's, it's God's standard of his own righteousness and character that defines what is fair and what is not fair. And God is in every way right, fair, so and righteous. Um, to which Paul anticipates an, another response, which is, well, then how, if, if that's the case, Paul, if God is sovereign, he's not unfair, then how does he still hold us responsible for our sins? So look at verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And then God says, um, essentially, nip it, right? Okay, don't talk back to God. But if you insist, let me give you a picture of what is in the heart of God when it comes to unconditional election, divine sovereignty. Um, it is through those means, that means that God is displaying his character to us, his wrath against sin, those who are unrepentant, and his, and his grace and mercy to those whom um, he has elected to save. And so this is kind of an example of what a prosopopeia is. Uh, prosopopeia, there we go. I'm, I'm going to get it right. Say that 10 times fast. Paul's the defense lawyer, and he's making his case, and nothing less than the righteousness of God is at stake for him. And he's anxious to protect God's glory. He's anxious to protect God's reputation. 
he's anxious to answer any critics that might bring a charge against God. And that's the flow in where Romans 9 is going. And so we are into section two this coming Sunday. So I encourage you between now and then, read through Romans 9. Read through Romans 9 through 11. Get the whole flow of thought. And as you do, I think it'll make more sense as we are coming and and digesting this word in chunks um, that it will become clearer to us why Paul is arguing the way that he does. All right, that's it for this Friday. I hope you guys have a great weekend. Looking forward to being with you on Sunday. Uh, Let me pray. Lord, we want to think your thoughts after you. We want to think biblical thoughts. We want to have our minds and hearts shaped um, not by the cultural winds or our own fallen flesh or sinfulness, but by your word. So Lord, give us your grace that we might do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a great weekend.